0: morning, everybody. Welcome to Current. Uh, I had the chance to watch some of the NBA finals this last week. It concluded. Uh, the Bucks were victorious. I don't know if you had a, any skin in that game. I imagine a lot of people out here in the Bay Area did not, but it was fun to watch. Uh, there was one thing, though, that really stood out to me in the, in the middle of the game that uh, just kind of like caught my attention. And that was while the game was like going full swing and the the lead was changing back and forth like multiple times, the commentators just in the midst of all that shifted and started talking about something that wasn't really about the game at all. Like they just started talking about the the coach, the head coach on the Phoenix Suns, this guy named uh, Monty Williams. Uh, They they talked about him again while the game's going and it's, it's an exciting game and it literally was the last game of the finals. Uh, for what had to have been about a minute, maybe even a minute and a half, which is like an eternity in the life of comment, com- commentating on, on sports, they just started talking about this guy. And what they were saying is, like, this is an incredible man of integrity. This is a man of, of character. This is a man of faith. And at one point, one of the commentators said, if you've never seen it, go on YouTube later and watch the eulogy that he delivers for, at his wife's funeral when they tragically lost her to a car accident. So later on, I did that. And by the end of this eulogy, I was wrecked. I mean, I was just all teared up. I mean, it was just, it was just an incredibly moving uh, speech. And he was talking about how, like, you know, it, you know back when he was working for the Spurs, uh, he was known as the uh, coach that would always leave right at the end of practice so, like, right when practice ended, he was always first out of there, and he said the reason for that is he just wanted to go home and spend time with his wife. Like, all the other coaches would just, like, make fun of him, rag on him for just, you know, leaving practice right afterwards, but he just wanted to go home and spend with his life, and he was laughing about it, chuckling at it with, during, in this eulogy, because he's like, and all we did was just sit there in the living room. It's like, half the time, we didn't even watch TV. We were just spending time with each other. And his whole message, the whole big point of his eulogy was to say, you know, this is hard. Uh, This is is really rough on our family, but let's not lose sight of what really matters here. He said, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss talking to her. I'm going to miss being with her. I'm going to miss holding her hand. But I know where she is. She's in heaven. Let's not miss what really matters here. And he said, Scripture shows us that God is good. God is love and he's going to work all of this out. God is good. God is love. And he's going to work all of this out. And he, in this matter of like six minutes, maybe seven minutes tops, this eulogy, this short speech, he addressed things like how we can sometimes not understand how, why, how or why God allows certain things into our life, but, he, but that he can be trusted. And then even addressing in this short speech, things like spiritual darkness, evil, the devil, uh, I, I really encourage you to listen to it if, if you haven't. It's, re, it's really a moving, moving speech. But one of the big sound bites that, were pick, that was picked up in the, in the papers is when he said, you can't give in. And here's the, here's the fuller quote. He said, it will all work out. Life's hardships, tragedies, all that, it'll all work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. You see, the Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just numb that. And it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you, get outside of these walls, and you know it's true, but this will work out. Doesn't mean it's, it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times, or we're not going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord, and this is what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Uh, We pick up in the introduction of Jesus' life and ministry here as we continue This Is The Way, our series through the book of Luke. And we see that this famous text of Jesus facing temptation addresses some of these very same themes. For instance, how life is hard. Life was hard for Jesus. And there's this question in the background, where where was God the Father in the midst of all of this? And then this text also addresses evil and the devil. How, how the devil's lurking in the background and how, how often one of his greatest methods to trying to get at us is through temptation. Temptation, by the way, regardless of what you think of the devil or spiritual evil, that's a whole other important topic that we're not necessarily going to just dig into all, all here now. If you have questions, we can talk about that later. But regardless of where you kind of fall on that, temptation is something we all face. It impacts each and every one of us. It's something we all wrestle with. But, it seems to me, our society doesn't really talk about it temptation, and how how we can wrestle with it, how we ought to address it, how we ought to respond in, in the midst of it. And here before us with this famous account of Jesus facing temptation, what we have here is not just Luke, the author, saying he went out, he faced temptation, and he overcame it. He was victorious. I mean, Luke could have left it like that. But instead, Luke deliberately includes a lot of detail leading up to the temptations and then about the temptations themselves. Why? Well, it has to be at least for the reason of to help us, to aid us when we face temptation. So today's text, we're going to look to see how temptation, uh, how we are empowered through Jesus to face the temptation that, that we face. So let's pray and then we'll, then we'll jump in. Father, you teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation, And so we depend, we rely on you to lead us and help us in this. Uh, Would you, through your word, through your spirit, and through the example of of your son, uh, equip and empower us for the temptations we face? Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's get into the text. And I want us to notice something here right off the bat that I think is pretty easy to miss. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Okay, so leading up into this time of temptations, it says that Jesus spent time in the, in the wilderness where he was led deliberately by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had just been baptized uh, back in verse 22, you see that the Spirit descended on him like a dove, that the Father like, opened up heavens and spoke audibly to him, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. And then right after that, we're told he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And actually, Matthew and Mark's accounts, uh, in their accounts, it's actually even more striking, the wording there. In Matthew's account, it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Actually, that word is often uh, translated from the Greek into English as thus or therefore. (laughs) So this could actually be read, therefore, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. In Mark's account, he says one of his favorite little sayings here. He says at once the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. What we see here is wilderness experiences are bound to come. Like they're just inevitable. Temptation, conflict, hard times. They're going to come. And in, with Jesus' uh, circumstances in particular, and as uh, showing for, for us how it often works, he had literally just experienced probably the highest of highs you can experience. When you think about spiritual high of highs, he was on the mountaintop. The Spirit descending on him. The Father speaking audibly, this is my Son, whom I love. Just the mountaintop of... Of, of highs, only to be led right in the midst of that, out of that into the lowest of lows, into the valley. And we see this in many respects. First of all, it must have been hard for him physically, right? Not eating for 40 days. That would not be fun. Uh, emotionally, relationally, he's all alone. And then, of course, he has this battle with, with, with temptation, with the devil himself, with evil. So he's tried spiritually as well. If you're here and you're looking into the claims of Jesus, and what it's all about, despite what the televangelists will tell you, it's not a promise that life will just get easier for you or, or more comfortable. Often, I'll actually meet up with folks and as they're trying to figure out what it all means, it's kind of this idea, it, the, the thought that's being worked through is, oh, okay, if I accept Christianity, how will, what will it do for me? What, what will the difference mean? Now, there's some wonderful promises about Christianity. Actually, far better than having a more comfortable life, easier life. Uh, not least of which is having a restored relationship with God, eternal life in his name. But then even in the midst of here and now, that life being lived out through his spirit, his promises, we get his peace, his love, his joy, even in the midst of real trying circumstances. But the promise is not that life will become easier or more comfortable. And then for those of you who are followers of Jesus, don't we easily sometimes get into the wilderness and think, it's because God is mad at me. (laughs) Or maybe it's because I have done something wrong. But the reality is sometimes we are in these desert places because that's exactly where God wants us to be. Now remember, it says that the Spirit led Jesus there. Every valley doesn't mean a wrong turn. Uh, sometimes the valleys are the pathways God wants to lead us through to the mountaintop. Sometimes they are God's training in our lives. Yes, sometimes we end up in the valleys because of our own wrong choices, okay? Uh, foolish decisions, whatever it might mean, but not necessarily and not always. And this has to be why each of the gospel accounts start with Jesus out there in the desert, right after his baptism, helping us understand these things. Okay, so what were these temptations Jesus faced that, that we can face? Uh, look, let's look at the first one that uh, we pick up in verse 2. He says, he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word of God, it says in Matthew's account. So what was the temptation here? Just to eat food, just to satiate his hunger? No, Uh, the devil was enticing Jesus to tap into his power as a son of God for his own purposes, for his own selfish use. Because you see here, the devil says, hey, if you're the son of God, it's an interesting way to put it because the fact of the matter is Jesus is also the son of man. Uh, one of his favorite terms for himself, actually. He says it over 80 times. He calls himself the son of man over 80 times in the gospel accounts. And the whole point of Jesus coming into this world was to live as one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. Or as it says in Philippians 2, how he made himself nothing, that he emptied himself Uh, There's this point in the garden of the Gethsemane right before he went to the cross where the mob came to arrest him. One of his main disciples, actually his main disciple, Peter, kind of brought out a little dagger and managed to slice off the ear of one of these, these guards. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, what are you doing? Healed the man's ear. He said, don't you realize, Peter, that if I wanted to get out of this situation, I could have at a moment's notice a legion of angels at my side? The whole point of Jesus coming into this world was to live as one of us so that he could deliver us, that he could, he could bring us out of this trouble that we find ourselves in because of sin. He emptied himself in order to serve, not himself, but others, which is why you see miracle after miracle in the gospel accounts, but never for himself, always for others. And what the devil was doing here as he tempted him is he says, You're hungry. You know you can make that stone into bread. Do it. You know that donuts are coming a millennia from now, two millennia. You just make it a donut and eat it, right? Uh, Have you ever been super hungry? I mean, like, super hungry. Have you ever been super hungry? Uh, I've gotten hangry. I think we've all experienced that, right? That's after a couple of hours of not eating. I can get hangry. But we're talking 40 days of not eating like solid foods. Uh, We had a buddy, Cindy and I, who. did this like, liquid-only fast for, I think he tried to do 40 days. I don't, I don't, he got close, but he, I, don't, I don't know how, how he ended up finishing. But basically, he, he was saying, he was doing research in the midst of all of it, and he said, and he was experiencing this along the way, that when you do something like that, you get super hungry in the beginning, but then you meet, reach kind of like a plateau phase for like, I don't know, however many days or a week, where you actually, your body kind of adapts and you're fine for a little bit, only to then enter into like, basically starvation mode, actually literally, and your body's just like, give me food now, right? And you just start feeling it. And, our, and my buddy, I'll never forget this, he's saying, you guys know how in cartoons, when they're trying to say, you know, a cartoon character's really hungry, they'll look at another cartoon character and their face will turn to like a hamburger or a pizza. Like, I am not making this up. You guys look like pizza and hamburgers right now. And we, at that point, were like, we had like a little bit of an intervention with them. We're like, dude, all right, this is enough, okay? You made your point. You got this far. No more. Jesus was. It says Jesus ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. He had just experienced the highest of highs, and now he's just like in this lowest of lows, physically just just tired and anguished, and he's in the middle of a crisis. And here's the question that he was facing, that that we face. This is really what the temptation came, came down to, at least it seems to me, is would he trust God in crisis? Would he say, God, wait, what's the deal here? Weren't we just... Doing this whole baptism thing, but now I'm like, almost, where's the food gonna from, come from? Is it gonna come from? Uh, is, is it gonna come to me? Uh, I'm in a, a pastor's network here on the peninsula that has about 30, 40 pastors, and, and I'm in a group that will organize some of these events for, for them. And uh, at one point, we had a speaker come out whose topic was how to pastor when your life is a mess. And we had awesome turnout that week. (laughs) All the pastors came out like, I want some of that, of course, for their pastor friends. But they came out for that, how to pastor when your life is a mess. And the speaker, just this guy in the area, who's a pastor of one of the largest churches, actually, well over 10,000 members, like, big church. He'd been in the ministry for about 40 years, and he was talking about how his life has just been through the ringer, okay? He had had a, uh, a young adult son who he, whom he lost tragically. Uh, his, he and his wife both have major, major health issues. Uh, the church has major issues. And he was saying, you know, it's through crisis, crises like these in my life, in, in those times, that I came to the place to, to actually ask the question, do I really believe what I believe? He just really wrestled with that because he, he said, I've preached Romans 8, 28 over the 40 years, I, being God works all things out for the good of those who love him. I, I've preached that all, you know, all over, the, over those 40 years, and I came to the place, do I really believe that? I think for many followers of Jesus, it's easy to have the head knowledge of, yeah, God is with me, God is for me, even in the times when they get rough, but then times do get rough. And then we think, maybe our tune changes a little bit. Maybe our tone changes a little bit. It's interesting that as Jesus quoted Scripture to the devil in his response to kind of end the temptation, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word of God. He was referencing with that quote the plight of the Israelites when they fled Egypt and they were out in the wilderness. A time when God had been training them, led them out into the wilderness and training them through this thing called manna. These little waivers of bread that kind of came down daily that they had to learn to trust him for and rely for 40 years. That's what Jesus quoted in the midst of that. Jesus was at the end of his rope. Starvation was closing in. Would he trust God in crisis? Or would he say, God, how dare you allow this to happen? Where are you at? Why are you leading me here? Is this what it's all about? Or would he say, I'm going to trust you, even though I'm not necessarily sure how it's going to work out. That's the first temptation. The second one we pick up in verse 5. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I, I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this might not seem like a big of a deal of a a temptation on the surface. For instance, who's the devil to say that he has the authority to give the kingdoms to Jesus? Isn't it God who has the authority to give kingdoms to Jesus? Well, actually, the way the Bible talks about it is for a time, because of Adam's rebellion and because of our sin, the authority has been given to the devil to have some authority in this place. For instance, there's places in Ephesians 2 that describes the devil as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Or Ephesians 6, where he is a principality. He's an authority figure. So in a way, the devil did have authority to give Jesus the kingdoms. But you know why this was a sweet deal? Or I should put it this way. Why this was so tempting to Jesus? Is because if Jesus had received the kingdoms this way, he would have not had to suffer. He wouldn't have had to go to the cross. Uh, The question that Jesus faced here was, would he give in to avoid pain. And boy, when we start to ask the question that way, I think we can understand a little bit of how temptation often works in our lives. Will we give in to avoid a little bit of pain? Jesus could have had the kingdoms, could have had the splendor, the authority without having to go to the cross, without having to die for the sins of the world. Would he give in to avoid pain? This is how temptation works, say in your business deal. When you realize that if you're dishonest with it, you probably will get it. It'll probably go through or work out, at least in that sense. And if you're uh, honest with it, it probably won't work out. <laughs> the deal will probably be done. So you have a choice between the Jesus way and accepting what will come if you're honest, or the Adam way, which is basically to say, Normally I'm honest, but this is too sweet to pass on this business deal. This is, this is good. And, and you know, it's not that big of a deal. And uh, you know, if so if, if people find out about it, I, I can explain it away. It's not. I'll just go ahead and do, be dishonest this time. Or we do this in our relationships when normally we're faithful in our relationships, uh, but maybe because of loneliness or pain or hurt or whatever the case might mean, uh, we find ourselves doing inappropriate things or in a, inappropriate relationships just to kind of take care of it. Uh, you know what counselors will, will tell you? It's that when, when there's a moral failing in a person's life, it is never with the idea that the person did it just to ruin their lives, I mean, obviously. But always, just about, to heal some sort of pain, some brokenness, just to kind of bring some healing and, and, and some, some uh, health, um, uh, life into it, whether it's an emotional pain, a financial pain, a career pain, whatever it would be when we face this, it's, when we give in, it's because the pain is just too great, we can't do it. And here's the thing about uh, temptation. Here's the thing about sin. It's almost always worth it in the short run, or at least I shouldn't say worth it. It always works in the short run. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. Uh, Jesus could have had the the kingdoms here, but not the kingdom as it was meant to be. Uh, That's the second temptation. The third temptation we see in verse 9. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Then, and they will lift you up in, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said, it is, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I used to read this when I was younger and just kind of chuckle. I'm like, man, this would not be tempting, right? Like just to be led to the highest point in the temple, which is a little over 100 feet high, by the way. And, and just to be said, hey, why don't you just jump off that? I'd be, I'm good. I'm not, (laughs) that's not tempting. All right. But there's obviously more going on here for us to consider, which by the way, let's start with a little bit of a peripheral. And that is to consider the use of scripture here as the devil tempted him. Because one of the things that you can do with a quick reading of this text is say, okay, I see what the takeaway is here. Jesus, every time he's tempted, responds with Scripture, responds with God's Word. So therefore, the takeaway is we need to learn God's Scripture. We need to memorize it. We need to let it just kind of marinate so that when temptation comes, we have Scripture to draw from to combat the the devil or temptation, and and, and we're good. And, you know, that's that's a wonderful takeaway. That's certainly good and true. But recognize that while Jesus uses Scripture here, so too does the devil. And I think we all can... Real quickly in our minds, think of plenty of times in our society that Scripture or God's Word has been used for, frankly, evil things. You don't have to go back to the Crusades or slavery. You can just go back to the last election cycle. Scripture can be manipulated. Now, Jesus had a very humble, thorough understanding of Scripture. He had a contextual understanding, so he knew how it all fit together. But the point is here, when Jesus was tempted, there's some truth embedded in it. The devil was quoting scripture about the Messiah, saying, hey, the scripture says that God's going to take care of you, Jesus. He's going to send his angels that you would not dash your feet on the, uh, as you fall. But Jesus knew the point of that promise was, was when you are following and trusting the Lord, not when you put him to the test. Uh, here's the question, and then, and then I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. I think the, the question he was tempted with here is, would he serve God or would he use God? I think especially to my Christian friends here, this is one just to really lean in on because we can easily miss what's going on here. I attended a seminar uh, a while back now of a pastor who was just sharing one of his pet peeves with other pastors in the room. There's a group of pastors, and this pastor was sharing one of his pet peeves, and he said his pet peeves is whenever pastors or, or Christians say something like, if you're not out there living on the edge for God, if you're not living in such a way where if God doesn't show up, then you're not really living for God. You've got to really put yourself out there on a limb. And he said to this group of pastors, don't say that. Like, Don't, don't just put it that way, because that can sound motivating. It can sound good. If you go out on that limb, God will show up. But the reality is, if you go out on that limb and you start to saw, God will not necessarily save you unless it was that limb he called you out on. Are you following that? He said, if God calls you out there onto that limb and he says that you understand in your spirit or however, get sawing, then okay, get sawing. (laughs) That's trusting God. That's following him. But if we look around and we say, you know, I'd really like to do such and such. I'd really like to do this. And God will show up. God will do his thing. But there's really no evidence for that. He's like, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Uh, Jesus affirmed this. The scriptures say, don't put the Lord to your test. Think about this from God's perspective. Like what's going on kind of at the the higher level. You know, it would be as if my son came to me and he would never do this. He said, dad, I know you love me, but I'd really know if you love me if you gave me this Minecraft game I really want. You know? You don't have to be a parent to know that. would just cut you to the heart as a parent. Like, oh man, really? Because what will he have done is he will have reduced the relationship to one that's transactional. To one that provided I serve him for. Uh, There are a lot of promises in the Bible. There are a lot of wonderful uh, promises to protect, that he will provide, that he will care for for us. But those ultimately aren't to test or manipulate the relationship with God. Because his love is so much deeper than that. Jesus knew this, he understood this, and he's like, no, 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 I'm going to put following God first, I'm going to trust him. Uh, There are the three temptations. Let's consider for a few moments why they matter, and then then we'll close. What what the temptations mean for us. First of all, they mean that Jesus can empathize when we're tempted. This is an, an incredible thought, if we just let it sink in. It means Jesus can and wants to empathize when we face temptation. in our time of need. What's that saying? It's incredible. Sometimes I think we can easily think that when we fall into the trap of temptation, we we give in, that God is up there like, I knew it. I see it. I see what's up. But that's not what this text is telling us. This text is telling us that God is up there in those moments with love in his heart, with empathy, feeling what we feel. I regularly get together with folks as a pastor, and it'll be brought to my attention that they're struggling with something, maybe fallen into temptation just like repeatedly, and just at the, at the heart level, it's just really hard, and, and all the rest of it. And, and often, it'll be accompanied with the thought of, and I think God's disappointed with me, or I know God's disappointed with me. Now, look, God wants you and me to take sin seriously. Absolutely. At the same time, he knows we're not Jesus, that we need Jesus. And what did he do in order to help that? Part of that was experiencing all the temptations you and I face. Temptations of pride, anger, lust, Greed, you name it. It says he tempted, he was tempted in every way. And in our text, verse 13 says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. That's saying the three temptations that Jesus faced here in our text weren't just the only temptations he faced. He faced every temptation. Why? Not to lord it over us when we don't fit the bill, when we don't live up to what he did for us. Why? To empathize, to love, to care for us. We we can know that Jesus empathizes with us. that's That's partly what this text means, but, but then also we see that it means we can find freedom in Christ. Ultimately, that's what this text is about. It's about Jesus' victory over sin and evil. Uh, you're probably aware of John Milton's famous po- epic poem, uh, Paradise Lost, and how that's set kind of in the, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that, that would make sense. But you know where he, chose, where he chose for his subject, for his follow-up, Paradise Regained? The story of Jesus' temptation. I would have thought he would have picked the cross, right? The resurrection of Jesus, but he actually chose this. Why? Well, the cross is where the the victory was final, but this is where it began and it was over. Jesus out there in the wilderness, led by the spirit, living as one of us, overcame. He was victorious. And so therefore we can have freedom in him. The point here, the Bible likes to talk about this. Jesus is the new Adam. You know, Adam, when he sinned, and when he chose rebellion towards God, which we do every day, frankly, uh, introduced sin and the effects of that, uh, not least of which is spiritual separation from God. In fact, that's the greatest ramification of that. And so cancer, this cancer of sin entered the world. So Jesus came into this world. That's, by the way, why the virgin birth is so important, that he's both son of God and son of man, that he could... Empty himself, as we talked about from Philippians 2 earlier. And as it goes on to say, he was made in human likeness, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The whole point here in the wilderness is he would go to the great wilderness on the cross for the sins of the world to die for our sins. That when we receive him, we can have a restored relationship with him. So there's freedom there. But even better than that is it means he's made it possible for us to become children of God. Beloved children of God. Notice again that when the devil was tempting him, he used this phrase a couple of times. He says, if you're the son of God, and then he would do his temptation. He was literally challenging the very thing that God the Father had just affirmed to Jesus at the baptism. This is my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. The biggest temptation that ran thematically through each of these three temptations was, God's not really your father, at least in the way that you would expect him or think him to be. How can, how can a good father allow you into this? Where is he at right now? Why isn't he doing anything? And to Jesus specifically, this isn't worth suffering to the point of being crucified for. Look again at verse 7. This won't be on your screens, but it says, If you worship me, the devil said, it will all be yours. Sure, Jesus would have received a kingdom, splendor, authority, and glory that the devil talked about here. But all wouldn't have been his. Uh, because we wouldn't have been his. The whole point of this text is showing how Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us, to rescue us, to go to the cross, even when he was tempted not to, to have the resolve to go into greater pain than you and I could even fathom, let alone experience. Why? For you and for me. It's his love that has set us free. It's his love that has made us children of God. So now, so now, When we've put our faith in him, the promise, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is God the Father looks at you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I am well pleased. It's based not on you being able to overcome temptation. It's based not on anything you can do to kind of try to make him love you a little bit more or anything you can't do that you think might make him love you any less. He looks at you. And because of what Christ has done for you, says, you are my daughter. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the wonderful gift of Jesus. So yeah, you can look to scripture, memorize it, take it in, marinate on it, hold it up when you're being tempted. There's a wonderful takeaway there. I I don't want to detract from that. It's a good takeaway here. But more than that, know that Jesus empathizes with you, that he sets you free, and that he's made you, into a child of God when you've received him. Uh, One of the greatest temptations Monty Williams, the coach of the Phoenix Suns, faced around the time of his wife's death was uh, how to think about the family that basically caused it. It was the Donaldson family. The gal who was driving the other car, it turned out, was heavily on drugs when it happened. So meaning it wasn't just a tragedy, it was a senseless tragedy. And so, you know, he was just kind of talking about, he said, but he said this in the middle of the usually, he said, guys, I want to be really clear today. There are two families we need to be praying for today. Hey, you guys all came, you all showed up, and you're praying for my family. I am so grateful for that. Please continue to do that when we need it. But you also need to be praying for the Donaldsons, because they lost somebody. And this same God who is good, who is loving, and who can work things out for good, we need to be praying for him to enter into their lives. It's because of Jesus Christ and his victory here in the wilderness and then ultimately on the cross that someone like Monty Williams could do that and say, you know what? I forgive. I'm, not gonna... I'm a beloved child of God that I can even extend that to this family because it's not mine. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is the calling that we're invited into. Temptation is going to come after us hard and fast. And... But you know what? The Lord loves you. He gives you the strength He gives you, he models for you. He shows you how you can look to scripture. He gives you even better his love and his empathy in the midst of it all. But there's freedom there too when you you mess up, which you will. And most of all, he's made you a child of God if you receive him. So lean into him. Know it, rest in it, take it to heart. Let's pray. Actually, before we pray, as, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus uh, you can do that today. The scriptures tell us that whoever believes on him, all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. There it is again. That he will receive you as a beloved child in whom he's well pleased because of what Christ has done for you. He will receive you today if you would receive him and what he has done. Nothing you can do to earn it. All you do is receive it and say, thank you. I believe, Father, I receive. And if you would like to begin a journey of following Jesus, receiving what he did for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to give you a moment to respond today. You do that in your heart, but you can indicate that today by raising your hand even now. I will see it, but more importantly, God will see what's in your heart. We'll pray for you. I should give you a moment that if you'd like to receive Jesus, you can raise your hand. Father, we just ask for your help in all of this. We, we confess that we regularly give in to temptation all the time, and, and it's, it doesn't take a lot to look around and see the effects of it in our lives, how it impacts our relationship with others, how it impacts ourselves, how it impacts our relationship with you. And yet, you came to defeat sin and devil They're in the wilderness, temptation itself. And you ultimately went to the cross to die for all the times when we miss the mark, when we give in, when we don't trust you. And so, Father, we say thank you. Would you help us as we face temptation, primarily for your sake, but also for the sake of others in our lives and for our own selves. And, Father, would you help us increasingly uh, become uh, made into the likeness of Jesus, the beloved children that you've you've made us to be. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.